You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So on July the 27th in 1631, Robert Bruce, who was a Scottish reformer, friends with William Wallace, he was having breakfast with his daughter, and uh, he was nearing the very end of his life, and at this point he was mostly confined to his room. And uh, at this point, uh, people would come by and visit because they knew that Robert's days were coming to an end, so family and close friends would come by and uh, say their goodbyes to Robert Bruce. And they knew his time in this life was short. And so on this particular morning on the 27th, Bruce was eating his typical breakfast, a single boiled egg. Every day, the same, a single boiled egg. But on this particular morning, he enjoyed his boiled egg so much that he asked his daughter if she would boil him another one. Two boiled eggs. But as she began preparing the second egg, he called to his daughter and he said, Daughter, wait, my master calls. See, he felt his health suddenly declining and beginning to fail. And in that moment, he actually lost his eyesight. He became blind. And so he called his children to him who were there at the house. And he said, bring me the family Bible. He said, open it to this eighth to the 8th chapter in the book of Romans where Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so they opened up the Bible to that chapter, uh, to chapter 8 in the book of Romans, and he said, Put my finger on the text. Put my finger on that text. And when they told him, Father, your, your finger is on that text. And with his children gathered around him, he said, May God be with you, my children. I breakfast with you this morning, but I shall sup with my Savior tonight. And after that, shortly, Robert Bruce died and met his Savior. Friends, this morning... We come to the end of Romans 8, like Robert Bruce, we want to put our finger on that text. We want to put our finger on that text, we want to read it, we want to take it in, and more than that, we want to believe it so deeply that blind and on the brink of death, we would say with confidence that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning, our text really breaks down into two movements. First, there's a question. It's called the question of separation from God's love. That's our first heading today. It's the question of separation from God's love. This is the final of of Paul's rhetorical questions. Remember, as we brought Romans 8 to a close, Paul's asked seven questions. This is our sixth and seventh question. It's a combo question, and it's a question of separation. It's the really the question of questions in light of all of the glories of Romans 8. His final question is, is there anything that I'm not thinking about? Is there anything that could separate us from the love of God? Can I have assurance that nothing, 
will be able to drive a wedge between me and God. That's our first movement. It's a question of separation. And then Paul answers that question. And here's the second movement. The unquestionable security of God's love. He asks a question, but he responds by saying, you are unquestionably secure. See, Paul will emphatically and rather poetically answer his own question that no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because in Christ, believers are unquestionably secure. And friends, there's no fine print. There's no caveats. There's no if, ands, or buts. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love. So let's unpack this text together. We'll start in verse 35 as we see our first point, the question of separation from God's love. Here again, the word of the Lord. Verse 35, Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now before we dive into these last questions... Let's remember the questions he's asked so far so you can trace Paul's argument. In verse 31, he asked a question of reflection. It was the the first question in this series of questions. And it's one of those questions meant to, to have us to step back, to pause, to reflect and consider all that God has done for us in the gospel. Paul says, consider the reality that the penalty has been paid for our sins through the blood of Christ. Reflect on the fact that in Christ you are free from all eternal condemnation. And his love for you extends beyond forgiveness all the way to adoption. He wants you to consider all the glories of Romans chapter 8. That you are deeply loved. And that every single ounce of suffering that you will experience in this sin-soaked world will actually and ultimately work out for your good. That God has put the full weight of his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. He he has put the full uh, drive of his omniscience, all of God's all-encompassing wisdom. That he is putting the full force of his omnibenevolence, meaning that everything he does is perfectly good. He is is taking all of those things and working everything out as only he can for your good so that there's not a single ounce of your suffering that is wasted, but all of it works out together for good. And that when redemption is complete, that you will be transformed into the image of Christ and you will share in his glory. Paul says, just think about all of that. Then he asked a question of opposition. He said, well, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And Paul comes to the conclusion that because God is for us, there is actually no adversary or opposition that is able to overcome those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God is for you, no one's going to be able to thwart God. No one's going to be able to divert God's love for you. No one is going to be able to overwhelm God's purpose and plan for your life. Then the third question was a question of assurance. Paul said, can I, how can I know that God will provide everything that I need? How will I know that God will give me everything that I need? And Paul says, listen, Christian... He didn't spare his own son, 
but generously gave him up for us all. That's proof. Beyond proof that God, that since God has taken care of your greatest need, you can trust him for everything else. That God is not going to get cheap at the end. That because he's given you the greatest gift, you can trust him for everything else. And then last week, we looked at a question of condemnation. Of condemnation. Did Jesus really pay the penalty for all my sins? Or are there still some that are outstanding? Meaning, he, he paid the penalty for most of them, but then there's still some things that I need to do. Could someone bring a charge against me? Could someone say, yes, but I, I have this against them? And Paul says emphatically, no, that Jesus paid it all. There is no one who could come into the courtroom of God's justice and say, but I have this against them because all of Christ's righteousness is given to you and therefore you are righteous and there is therefore now no condemnation. And further, Christ continuously advocates for you and he's doing so right now on your behalf at the right hand of God. And now he brings the chapter to a close with a final question. He's saying, okay, if all that is true, is there anything then? It's almost like, is there something I left out? Is there anything that could separate me from God? Is there anything that could drive a wedge between me and God? And I think the idea of a wedge is a helpful analogy. Think about what a wedge is. It's one of the, the, uh, it's one of the simple machines it's a simple but powerful machine just out of sheer curiosity. How many of you have ever used a wedge to split wood? Anybody? An axe is a wedge, by the way. And then you can just get a small wedge on its own. See, on your own, none of us in this room are powerful or strong enough to just split a log on our own. I know some of you work out, but you're not that strong. Okay? So what do you do? Well, you take a, a wedge and you find a little opening right, on a crack, and you, you put the wedge in there, and it gets situated, you know, the, the, the pointy end of the wedge goes in, and you take a hammer, a sledgehammer, you start pounding it, and what happens is, because the wedge is triangular, and it, and it opens up, as the wedge drives deeper and deeper into the piece of wood, it starts to split the log, and it works its way into the fibers of the wood a little bit at first, but then the force of the impact from the sledgehammer drives it further until the grains can no longer hold it together and then it splits. And that's what Paul is asking. He's saying, is there anything that could drive a wedge between us and the love of God? Maybe it starts small at first, but over time, is there anything that could just kind of work its way in as to separate me from the love of God? Is there, is there anything that we could face in this life that would separate me from God? Or another way to look at the question is, is there anything that I might come encounter with in this life that would serve as proof that I have been abandoned by God? Meaning that I look at my circumstances and based on what I'm seeing, based on what's happening, I would go, oh, this must mean that a wedge has separated us. This must mean that, I, that God is not for me anymore because if he was still for me and with me and loving me, then this stuff wouldn't be happening. 
And then he gives some possible wedges. He lists tribulation and distress and persecution and famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. And friends, this is not a hypothetical list. I know some of those things we may not face in our day and age, but for Paul, this is a mini biography of what he himself had faced. And I'm not going to read it this week, uh, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, we actually looked at that a few weeks ago. Paul lists out what ministry has looked like for him. And I promise you, none of us would want to sign up to go on those mission trips. Shipwrecks, getting beaten, being thrown into jail, bitten by snakes. I mean, Paul's biography is terrible when it comes to suffering and persecution. And this list isn't hypothetical for the early church. They are on the brink of systemic and hardcore persecution. The fire is about to get turned up on the early church as they face persecution. And over the next 300 years, Christians will be systematically persecuted. At one point, they're even put on stakes and lit up on fire to light the night, to light up the streets. It's not hypothetical what they're about to face. And so, and, and, and sadly, this is still what many Christians throughout the world experience. So this isn't hypothetical. So first, Paul lists tribulation. This is a Greek word that means to be squeezed under pressure. So you think about it, it's, it's, it's an external pressure pushing against you. So this would include trouble and trials and difficulties of various kinds. Paul's asking, will the pressure of tribulation separate us from the love of God? Or if I'm going through tribulation, is that proof that God has given up on me? Distress is his next word. This is a compound word that combines the word for narrow in movement. So taken together, this means to press something into a narrow and confined space. So all my friends in the room with claustrophobia just got triggered a little bit. It's okay, you're safe, big room. But that's what the word means. So it's, it's, it's like this internal pressure. A feeling confined and trapped. And it causes this stress. Will the pressure of feeling like I have nowhere else to go, will that separate me from the love of God? What about persecution? Well, this refers to afflictions suffered for the sake of Christ. So this is a particular word where someone is uh, persecuting you precisely for your belief in Jesus. This is religious persecution. You're being targeted for being a Christian. Paul's asking, will religious persecution, will that separate us from the love of God? Or will it serve as evidence that God has given up on me? And he goes on, he talks about famine and nakedness. In other words, he's saying, what if things get so bad that I lack the ability to provide for the basic necessities of life. Will that separate me from the love of God? Will inadequate provisions be proof that God has given up on me? What about danger and the sword? What if I face increasing threats to my life? What if it gets dangerous and costly to be a Christian? Will the ultimate threat of persecution unto death Will that separate me from the love of Christ? Under these pressures, what if I don't stand up? What if I fail? 
What if I give in? What if I say, you know what? It's too hard. I give up. I'm done. Will these drive me away from the love of Christ? If I experience these realities, Paul's saying, is that proof that it's even worse than I believe? I've already been separated. That's Paul's question. And he's wondering, is there anything in this life that will show that God has forsaken me, that he has abandoned me, that he has given up on me? And then, after he asks this question, he quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, here's Bible reading 101. Here's how to read your Bible. Anytime a New Testament writer quotes something from the Old Testament, that's not you getting an opportunity to skip over those verses. Okay? You're actually supposed to dive into those verses. You're actually supposed to look it up and go, what's Psalm 44 all about? Why would Paul have Psalm 44 in his mind? So you're supposed to go look it up and then read the context, read the whole psalm, because it's not irrelevant. Paul's not uh, just trying to fill up space. You remember in, in school when they'd say, hey, you need to write like a one-page uh, uh, paper or ten-page paper, and, and you really only had like, like a half a page of content, and then you just fill up the rest with, you know, stuff? Just to, just to meet the requirement. That's not what Paul's doing. This isn't an assignment where he needs to just fill up things. So he's like, I don't know, throw some Old Testament in there and we'll see how it goes. No, Paul has something very specific in mind. He's drawing out a point. And so you're supposed to ask this question. Paul, why did you put that there? What's the point of Psalm 44? What's the connection between what you're saying right now and what they were experiencing in Psalm 44? See, if you read Psalm 44, it is a fascinating psalm. It's called a psalm of lament. It's an expression of grief. And in this one, it's, it's not just what the psalmist is going through, but it's a, 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 a community lament. In other words, the writer is writing on behalf of the entire community of God. And they're detailing their grief and their anguish and their trouble and their pain. It's putting to words... Their experience of life in a broken, fallen, and often unjust world. Now typically when you get to Psalms of Lament, they're going to go through all those things. But you should be anticipating a turn. There will be this moment where it's like everything is bad. Everything isn't going our way. It's hard and difficult. And then there will be a, but we trust in you. But you are our God and therefore we can endure. In Psalms of Lament, there's this turn most of the time. There's a turn where the psalmist will preach the gospel to themselves, where they rehearse the goodness of God and they remind themselves, we need to put our trust in him, but not this psalm, not Psalm 44. It's like an open letter. You know these open letters to the editor where you could just, uh, just to say whatever's on your mind? That's what this psalm is. It makes a bold claim. It says, God, at least in this generation, we have been faithful. We've kept the faith. But you, Lord, have been unfaithful. God, you have forsaken us. You have abandoned us in our time of need. 
And if you're not real familiar with the Bible, you might be kind of shocked to hear that that's in the Bible. But it is. The Psalms give us the whole array of human emotion. When you read Psalm 44, you just keep waiting. When is the turn going to come? When are they going to put their faith in God? When is the the rehearsal of the good news going to come? But it never comes. You keep waiting, but it never comes. So it starts off like this. Oh God, verse 1. We have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. See, it begins by saying, hey, we've, we've heard of how you've been faithful. Like, our fathers told us you were faithful, and you've been faithful to past generations. And then it goes on and lists out some ways that God has been faithful to, to generations past And then that section concludes in verse 8 and says, In God, we have boasted continually, and we'll give thanks to your name forever. In other words, look at all the ways you've been faithful. We're going to continue to be faithful, just like our, our, our parents have taught us to be. And we'll continue to give thanks to your name. But then look at verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. And have not gone out with our armies. Notice, you remember in verse 1, he said, we've heard about your faithfulness. They didn't say we've heard and seen. What, What they're saying is, we've been told you're faithful, we don't see it. We've been told that you go out with your people, but you haven't gone out with us. We have not seen your faithfulness. We've been told about it, but the implication is we've never seen it with our eyes. In fact, what we have seen, our experience is that we've been rejected. He goes on. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for the slaughter, and you've scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. You're asking the question, why would Paul have this in mind? Do you hear tribulation in there? Do you hear distress and persecution? Do you hear the famine and nakedness as they've been plundered? Do you hear danger and sword? Do you hear the question? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Then the psalmist goes on and says, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, Nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Listen to this. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered this? For he knows the secret of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you hear the anguish and pain of the psalmist? We have not abandoned you, God, but you have abandoned us. 
If we had forgotten you and started worshiping idols, we would get it. It would make sense that we had abandoned you, so therefore you abandoned us. But that's not the case. We have been faithful, and yet we are covered by the shadow of death. We are like helpless, defenseless sheep being led into the slaughterhouse. And what's their point? And our shepherd is glaringly absent. It's the question of separation. It's asking, is there anything that could drive a wedge between us and God's love? Is there anything that would serve as proof that the wedge has already been driven and that you have given up on us? And as a believer, whether I'm faithful or unfaithful, in good times or bad, is there anything or anyone who can separate me from the love of God? That's the question. And friends, it's not hypothetical. Even though our experience may not be as traumatic as the ones we've just read, I think we ask this question all the time. I think you've asked that question. I know I've asked the question. Sometimes it may be more in the back of our minds, and sometimes it's on the front of our lips. But the question of separation is something all believers face. So let's look at verse 37 to see Paul's answer. Here's what Paul says. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul is emphatic. He is direct. Question. Can anyone or anything separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? Is there any circumstance or situation that I can face that would serve as proof that I've been abandoned by God? And Paul's answer is straightforward and simple. The answer is no. No. There's no one or nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing that you will face There's nothing you're facing right now. There's nothing you will face that will serve as proof that you have been abandoned by God. Now, think back to Psalm 44. It was written roughly 800 years before this moment in time when Paul was writing Romans 8. And for roughly 800 years, that accusation against God, we have been faithful, but you've been unfaithful. You have abandoned us, even though we have not abandoned you. It just stood out there, unanswered, for 800 years. The psalm ends like this. It's a call. It's a charge to God. They say, awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our bellies cling to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's how it ends. But friends, when it looked like God was asleep, he wasn't. When it looked like God had rejected them, he hadn't. When it looked like God is hiding his face from you, He hasn't. When it looks like God has forgotten you, you have ever been on his mind. And that call for redemption has been answered on the cross. You see, verse 37 says, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Past tense, 
loved us. So what is Paul thinking about? He's thinking about a moment in time. He's speaking to this moment in history that stands as the settled, definitive proof that God forever loves and forever holds on to his people. When did Christ prove beyond a shadow of a doubt his love for us? It's on the cross. When Paul says, through him who loved us, Paul has the cross in his mind. It was there on the cross that Jesus made a public definitive, settled statement of his love for you. And that cross, that moment in history, that, that hinge of history stands in, the, in eternity past. As God was laying out the foundations of the world, the cross was in mind. It has always been at the center of God's redemptive plan. Nothing, Paul says, not tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword is able to separate you from the love of Christ because his love for you is settled. It's proven. It's displayed. And it's given to you because of the cross. Christ did not suffer the scorn and shame of the cross only to abandon you down the road. Not only that, but the love of Christ will never let us go see all of those external things tribulation and trial and sword and danger and all that stuff none of them are more powerful than God none of them can drive a wedge between you and him so will we experience pain and persecution the answer is yes will we go through difficulty and suffering the answer is yes will there be times when even our basic needs go unmet the answer is yes. But that does not mean that God is sleeping on the job. That doesn't mean that he stopped working out all things together for good. Will there be times when you waver? The answer, yes. Will there be times when you doubt and you question his goodness and his love for you? The answer is yes. But even your wavering, even your doubting is not able to separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Because remember where this passage, 35 to 39, comes right behind 28 and 29. Where Paul tells us those whom he foreknew, those whom he set his love upon, those who he chose before the foundation of the world. Every single one of them will be what? Justified and glorified. It is an unbroken chain. So believer... If you've put your faith in him, your security in Christ, your place in his family, his love for you has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with, with your faithfulness. It has everything to do with his faithfulness. We often talk about the perseverance of the saints as one of the hallmarks of the Protestant Reformation. And it is a glorious truth, but it would be better named the perseverance of God. It's his perseverance, his faithfulness that leads to our faithfulness. And this tells us that we will overcome. Why? We are more than conquerors. I love this. Do you remember that time back in uh, uh, John chapter 16? 
It's the night in which Jesus was betrayed. It's the evening before his crucifixion. And in a few hours, he is going to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, tried, and sentenced to death. And so he's talking to his disciples and he's telling them about how he's about to go to the cross. And he's telling them about all the things that they're going to face in this world. And he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now this word for overcome is the Greek word Nike, which sounds like what? Nike. Right? I see some Nikes over there. You know what the word Nike means? It's, it's, it's the reason why they chose this name. It means conqueror. It means overcomer. It means the one who's going to defeat you. That's why, that's why the shoe brand makes sense. The word means to conquer, defeat, or overcome. So he says, but take heart, I have conquered the world. I will overcome the world. And wouldn't you know, it's the exact same word here in Romans 8.37. I believe that Paul had that in mind. He's saying, why can we be overcomers? Why can we be conquerors? Because Christ has overcome the world. His conquering power is given to us. And what's more than that is that Paul adds the Greek prefix hyper to it. Think about hyper. It means energized, excited. He's saying we're not just overcomers. We are more than that. We are hyper overcomers. We, it, our, our, our ability to defeat and overcome is ours in Christ. Christ has already won. He has already conquered. And because we are united to Jesus who is the conqueror, we will also, by our union with him, overcome. John Stott says, nothing seems stable in our world any longer. Insecurity is written across all human experience. Christian people are not guaranteed immunity to temptation, tribulation, or tragedy. But we are promised victory over them. God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that it will never separate us from his love. Our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail, fickle, and faltering, but in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. Friends, that's just a truth we need to get deep down into our souls. We are not immune to temptation tribulation or tragedy it's amazing how often the bible tells us that truth and how surprised we are when we go through it you can hardly turn a page of the bible without seeing the people of god the faithful being persecuted and yet we think it's strange when suffering comes upon us first peter 4 12 even says that exact sentiment he says beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But think about how, how often we go, why, how, how could this be? Like, how, why, why would I be going through suffering? And the Bible's like, hello, do not be surprised. You are not immune to it. God's promise is not that we will never experience suffering. His promise is that suffering will not separate us from his love. And that's a better promise. Our confidence is not in our love for him, but his love for us. Friends, 
What a promise we have in Romans 8. I heard a pastor once say, take the promises and the warnings of the Bible seriously, and that will lead to faithfulness. Our problem is we often discredit the warnings, like it won't be that bad, and we don't fully believe the promises. But we're supposed to. They're given to us to take both of them seriously. The promises of God and the warnings, we need them both. Now this passage is not teaching that you can pretend to be a Christian or look like a Christian or assume that you're a Christian because you go to church or do some good things. Real faith, real salvation will produce good works. Real salvation does produce a change in your life. Real faith will evidence itself in a changed life over time. That's what the warning passages teach. They say if you have been a Christian for a long time and there is no significant change in your life, your motives haven't changed, your desires haven't changed, your behaviors haven't changed, the only thing that's changed is you go to church on occasion, if that's what you're banking your, your evidence of salvation on, the warning passages say you better look again. Because your presumption or assumption that you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. So the warning passages say, you had better take a good look at your heart. Because there is real condemnation for those who are separated from Christ. That's the warning passages. But that's not what this passage is teaching. This passage is teaching, if you love Christ and you have given your life to him and you have put your faith in him genuinely, and really, and you are a son or daughter of God. What this passage is saying is if you've put your faith in him, imperfect as it is, if you can say, by the grace of God, I am loved by him. I'm alive to the things of God. This passage is saying nothing will separate you from the love of God. Not even your imperfect faith. And we should take this promise seriously. Listen to how Paul finishes. It's poetic. It's beautiful. And I think it's brilliant. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else, and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Did you notice as he finishes, he gets personal. He says, I am convinced. I am sure. Again, for Paul, this is not hypothetical. The only way Paul could have endured all that he's gone through is because this truth became personal. It was a deep conviction for him. And in fact, he uses a verbal tense to show how personal it is. It's called the perfect tense. Now, you don't need to know that. But what that does, it's a past tense with ongoing implications. So sometimes there's past tense things that kind of stain the past, that are settled in the past. And then there's past tense things that have ongoing everyday implications. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I became convinced of the love of Christ. When he knocked me off that horse... And showed himself to me and I saw the resurrected Jesus. I was convinced that he was who he said he was. That he did what he said he did. And that he saved me a sinner. 
And that conviction didn't stay in the past. I became convinced, and right now I am still convinced. And it is driving everything that I do. I became convinced, I remain convinced. What was his conviction? That there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. These lines are some of the more worshipful and poetic statements in the Bible. And because I need to be reminded of it often, we framed it and put it in our living room above our piano so that we would never forget that there's nothing. It's like a statement in our room. Patronella's, there is nothing you can go through in this life that can separate you from the love of Christ. Not death or life. Life is the beginning and death is the end and the implication is everything in between. There's nothing from the moment of your birth to your final breath that can separate you from the love of God. He goes on, no angels or rulers. There is not a spiritual being. There is not a cosmic force. There is not a governmental institution that can separate you from the love of God. None of them are more powerful than God's sovereign hand to fulfill his purposes in your life. There's nothing in the present or things to come. Meaning, I don't even have to know what you're going through right now. And I can tell you with confidence, there's nothing you're experiencing right now. There's nothing you could experience that can overcome the love of God. We could spend the rest of the afternoon. We could go one by one down the line. You could say, here's what I'm going through right now. You could tell me, here's the things I am dreadfully fearful of that I may experience in this life. And Paul's saying, none of those things, nothing you're facing right now, nothing that you fear in this life can separate you from the love of God. Not your deepest fear, not your hardest moment. There is not a single thing that has the ability to separate you from the love of God. No power, no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can overwhelm or overcome God's love for you. Friends, a chapter that began with no condemnation ends with no separation. What beautiful bookends. What beautiful promises. So what do we do with a text like this? Two things. First, cling to the promises of God. Hold fast to them. See, there's a reason why in the final moments of his life, blinded as he was, Robert Bruce wanted his fingers on this passage one last time. He knew he was about to go through the door of death. And what did he want? What did he want anchoring him? He wanted Romans 8. He wanted his heart to cling to this truth, to strengthen him in the final moments. Friends, I think we need to read Romans 8 often. It is like reinforced steel in concrete. You know how they put rebar in concrete? You know why they do that? It's to reinforce it. It's to strengthen it. See, concrete on its own has uh, compression strength. So if you like push against it, it's pretty strong. But it lacks tension and shear forces. It's actually pretty brittle. So they put the rebar in there, the steel, because it makes it stronger than it is on its own. That's what Romans 8 is. It's like reinforced steel to strengthen us. So many beautiful promises. So not only do I want you to know them, but I want you to memorize them. And I want you to clean them. Because if you are in Christ, Romans 8 is yours. It's yours. 
Second, trust God's word, not your circumstances. We say this all the time, but we need to say it often. If you are a believer, there is never a moment, no matter what you're going through, when you are not under God's care, and there's never a time when you're not the object of his love. He's always caring for you, and he is always loving you. This isn't up for debate. Look at me. I care about your feelings, but your feelings don't change reality. Right? Feelings are real. So it's, if you don't feel like God loves you, that's a real thing. But you, you take that feeling and you pass it through the grid of truth. Romans 8, if you just wanted to summarize it, is God loves you. And he's proven it to you. It's undebatable. It's not based on performance or situation. It is an undebatable fact declared for you here in Romans 8. So whatever you're facing, it is not a statement or a status report of God's love for you. Paul Tripp writes, if the big question isn't whether God cares, then maybe the real question, one that's more practical to us all, is will I recognize God's care when it comes? Perhaps our problem is our definition and expectation of God's care. You see, God's care comes in a variety of packages. His care is not always a cool drink and a soft pillow. God's care is not always relief from circumstances, release from trouble. There are many moments in our lives when the very thing that causes us to wonder about God's care is God's care. He knows that trouble will reveal our hearts or display his glory. Often trouble is a tool of care in the hands of the one who knows best what we need. He cares, period. Therefore, make sure your definition of his care is not too narrow. Friends, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Believe that. Build your life on that. Filter every situation and circumstance you go through through that lens because in Christ you are unquestionably secure. Let's pray.